0: The government has clearly lost control of the economy. We are looking at a conservative majority of 86. Why is the Prime Minister making a bad situation worse for working people by hammering them with a cut to universal credit and a tax rise? Right? I actually think that this is a win-win. It's, a, it's a, an open goal for Liz really. Will you Who shut up, your man? You said it on the record. You and, said you want the record. And just to come in on something way, that you, way, Bringing you the stories behind the headlines. You're listening to Politics Unboxed. Oh, you absolutely are listening to Politics Unboxed. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Reese, and I'm your host today. Between the hours of two and four, because it is a Wednesday. 2pm to 4pm as you should all well know by now. That is Politics Unboxed time. It is Politics Unboxed time. And it means it's time for us to see how the world is going. That world of politics, because plenty going on, plenty going on, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, We are going to be talking about so many, so many different things, not just from the UK and the US, as we may normally focus on, but from all around the world. Yes, it is a very... Good Wednesday afternoon to you all and um, there's some real fun uh hissing and popping coming from behind my microphone today, and that's um not necessarily because of microphone difficulties, it's just because of vague studio difficulties um I've had to switch studios at last minute because there's been a little bit of a little bit of a crash in our main one, which is Rather annoying to me, because I quite like that studio. It's quite useful to be in. It really does help, you know, present a show nice and efficiently. But I'll try and get rid of that background hiss and pop for you all at uh, some point. Probably in the next song break, we will try and get rid of all that for you. Oh, no, there it comes back again. Uh, We'll whack whack it onto here. But let's start with with some stories of the week so far, and what are we going to be talking about today on Politics Unboxed? Well, I'm a member of Parliament. Get me out of here, Matt Hancock, is on the hit. What's the word? Um, ITV show. Not quite certain uh, whether or not he's on there yet. I I don't really, uh, I don't really watch it anymore. I used to. I really used to. I say I really used to for about two seasons. But Matt Hancock, is it ever right for a sitting member of parliament to abandon their constituents for something so unpolitical? He's gone from speculation as to whether or not he will swallow his pride and join the Sunak cabinet or whether or not he'll be swallowing um, kangaroo appendages. So that's quite uh, uh, a turnaround for him. We'll have a look at the disasters in the east with a South Korea update where 150 are dead after a horror over Halloween weekend. And in India, death toll is rising after repairs fail, plunging hundreds into an icy river. We'll talk about that as it ticks over to 2.30. The Compassionate Society? Like hell we are, according to the UN migrant chief after Suella Braverman and her invasion comments We'll also talk about the Dover terror attack murder-suicide, which you heard about in the bulletin today. The NUS has rather shot itself in the foot. Just as it launches a mass campaign over student fees, they have dismissed their president over anti-Semitism allegations. We'll be talking about that issue as well. Israel is going to the polls with Benjamin Netanyahu predicted to return as of current exit poll data yes just over a year after being removed from office he's back we'll talk about the treasury tax rises it might not be a tax or treat budget anymore as it, as it wasn't delivered two days ago on halloween but it's looking a bit like tax and cut at the moment which isn't exactly very good indeed we're talking about the U.S. midterms. There's a lot to go about this one. Uh, It's crunch time as we have a week to go until we will know the results. Yes, uh, I'm sure you'll be able to listen to them somewhere. I I wonder where where would you be able to uh, to listen to that U.S. midterm election show? Get results and commentary live on the U.S. midterm election special. Tuesday the 8th of November at 10pm on Expression FM Oh, oh yeah, that that was it I forgot, silly silly, silly, silly me Um, you can listen to it right here on Expression FM where you'll be able to hear all of the fun and games as the US midterms go through the night starting at 10pm and then finishing I don't know whenever really we'll have to wait and see so that's what we can look forward to in the not too distant future but in the well in 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 if I can get the words out of my mouth in the even sort of closer future uh, as I try and find a way to uh, to get yeah let, let's see let's work out if we can get a bed underneath this particular uh, little bit of speech because it is rather annoying me that that hiss crackle and pop Yeah, there we go. Um, It's not quite Game of Thrones, but it is Rishi Sunak versus Keir Starmer in Prime Minister's Questions, which is going to be our first story of the day. And yeah, it's it's not been a great time at the Dispatch Box so far for Rishi Sunak, although it hasn't exactly been worse than Liz Truss's attempts from the Prime Ministership. Keir Starmer was on the attack, talking about the Rwanda policy, saying it's cost £140 million and hasn't led to any deportations, um, asking, why can't Sunat get a proper Home Secretary instead of Suella Braverman? Well, 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 the attack is certainly going on. Um, Suella Braverman also reportedly warned about migrant overcrowding at centres in Kent. Keir Starmer calling the asylum system, broken, or rather, echoing Rishi Sunak in calling the asylum system broken. Because they've been calling it broken, the Conservative Party, despite being, let me think, in um, in power for, what, 12 years now? Yes, that's it. 12 years of Conservative government, and still it is, uh, well, it's it's a mess, isn't it? It's a complete mess where they're calling the system the system that they have had a, a great hand in designing completely broken. Um Rishi Sunak came on the uh, the offensive to Keir Starmer's offense, if if that makes sense. Uh, as I'm going to put uh, I'm going to put another bed below this one as well. Just see where we're going. Um, yeah, let's put a bit of Clean Bandit because it's good. It's a good little song. Uh Rishi Sunak. On the offensive to Labour's offensive, again if that makes sense, saying that oh no no no. Labour aren't coming up with any solutions. Reminding Keir Starmer that he supported Jeremy Corbyn. Um I'm I'm not particularly sure as to why that's a thing. Um why why is that a, a statement? Richard Tunek supported Boris Johnson, Richard Tunek supported Liz Truss, Richard Sunek supported Theresa May and um and david cameron i don't know whether that's a particularly good attack line and it seems to be that when you are asking the opposition to to, to make government policy for you you may well be in in somewhat of a a down situation which you don't really want to find yourself in if you're rishi sunak because it just isn't it isn't the place you want to be as prime minister scrambling around to try and find some way of, um, of, of trying to blame the opposition for your actions. So I, I, don't, I don't really understand um, how Keir Starmer is, is meant to be providing government policy, although I'm, I'm sure Rishi Sunak will let you know at the next Prime Minister's Question time which is as well just just sort of making his uh making his comments saying the number of migrants who've crossed the channel this year is nearing 40,000 uh now the un's new human rights chief volker tuk uh he previously worked for the un refugees agency um, has described the word the use of the word invasion by Suella bravman as horrible uh he he worked for unhcr uh, he said while speaking in geneva invasion horrible word It absolutely is the problem that we often see. I know that very well from my previous position. I lived through this in 2015 and 16 when I was Assistant High Commissioner for Protection. These types of words and dehumanizing language I have heard from European politicians during that period is harrowing. He said work needs to be done to ensure it doesn't poison and add fuel to the fire on issues that are about human beings. And that is very important to mention because... Whilst it is very easy to to say things like uh, we we are seeing an Im- an invasion across the channel, um, we are also seeing you know people, ac- actual people, who who are trying to to make their way across the channel. And yes, it, it is quite right to point out that not all of these are refugees; some are economic migrants. But to to turn back on um on what what's the argument seemingly from the Conservative Party that no, they're not all refugees, some of them are economic migrants, to turn to the Conservative Party, they're not all economic migrants, some of them are refugees. It's quite simple. In order to make one argument, you have to be open to the other one. It it really isn't... I'm sorry, it shouldn't be rocket science, should it? I don't... I don't know, maybe it is rocket science but I I would have thought it isn't. I don't know. Rishi Rishi Sunak is under a lot of pressure. It was a particularly combative Prime Minister's questions this week. Labour leader Keir Starmer focusing on immigration at this week's standoff across the dispatch box, um, arguing, well, the Tories had delivered Brexit, according to Rishi Sunak, and ended the free movement of people from the European Union. The Labour leader hitting back the problems with Rwanda policy and the Manston processing centre show that Rishi Sunak just doesn't have a grip. Um, we, we've seen, well, we've we, we've seen as well Suella Braverman's reappointment to the Home Office. The controversy surrounding that just isn't going away. Starmer asking the Home, uh, sorry, asking whether the Home Secretary had received legal advice that she should move people out of Manston, that processing centre. In Kent, um, Sunak neither confirmed nor denied, only saying that the was taking significant steps to tackle the problems. I mean, it, it's it's hardly a Paxman level of of interview, is it? It's it it just I'm very confused as to how Rishi Sunak is is suggesting that he will be making his way through his campaign promises. And in a moment of uh, real news night, Downing Street has revealed the government is currently considering all of Rishi Sunak's campaign promises from over the summer and asking what is deliverable and what is possible. His press actually blaming the current economic climate for a change in plan. So I don't know how? Um, Rishi Sunak is, is going to suggest that he he has told the people of Britain exactly what he's going to do yet, because he hasn't, and it doesn't look like he will be telling the people of Britain what he's going to do for quite some while. We're going to take a very quick song break, where I, I think we can quite comfortably say that Suella Braverman is, is having a tough time of it, therefore... The question on everybody's lips is whether she should stay or she should go. So, it's almost like I've planned this song, Link, in advance. Have a little bit of a listen to the clash with Should I Stay or Should I Go. Back soon. I think we may, um, we may get... It may bring meatloaf slightly down a little bit here, because uh, I do love the, uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, as you may have guessed from some of the songs that I've been playing over the course of my time on Expression FM. Uh, I want to take that quick song break just to make sure that I was actually, you know, still speaking properly out on air, making sure it was all going out, checking all the connections and loose wirings. and it turns out that the reason I was hearing that uh, horrible little hiss in the background was the headphones I was wearing. Which had a loose connection, so there we go. Nothing, nothing wrong with with what's going out. It's it's wonderful. I wish we had um, a little bit of a of a producer function on here, but no. Producing and presenting all at the same time—that's the expression FM way. So I do want to come back in on that prime minister's questions. It was a massively difficult PMQs for Rishi Sunak. Um, he's a uh, Fifth Conservative Prime Minister in five years of Conservative government. There is not five years, 12 years, sorry, of Conservative government. There is, quite simply, nowhere to hide when something goes wrong. Um, There there is no one to blame, no one to say, oh no, it's Labour's fault, as MP Jonathan Gullis did. Rather um, confusingly, I, I must be honest, I, I wasn't particularly certain why he was saying this, but he, he did. He said, here we go, um, that th- it, was, it was Labour's fault and the EU's fault, despite the fact that we haven't had a Labour government since 2010, and we haven't had uh, EU regulation hanging over us since 2020 in relation to our immigration." One thing I also want to to say is that his Home Secretary didn't exactly help him either. So Ella Braverman saying the other day that legal immigration is out of control forced Rishi Sunak to admit that the speed at which this government and this country is processing asylum claims isn't good enough. But at the moment he's just about keeping his team on board as it were. He hasn't been caught offside by the Conservative Party, keeps on making those jabs at Jeremy Corbyn, which are very, very popular with his backbenchers, a lot of whom in that 2019 Conservative intake, he were brought on essentially to kick out or to make sure that Jeremy Corbyn wasn't going to make it into number 10. A lot of those Red wall seats, seemingly pro-Brexit, anti-Corbyn seats um especially in in relation to that 2019 general election not particularly certain how um how long those attacks are going to last for though because you have to wonder if the government continues to see the level of problems and and the the level of difficulties that it currently does um you wonder whether those those attack lines work because it is they have a shelf life, certainly. Um, they they really really do have a shelf life, and um, there is somewhat potentially of a cabinet battle going on. And this is why I am putting a bit of Hamilton beneath this uh, cabinet battle number one from the original cast going on in Conservative circles. We don't know how many of Rishi Sunak's allies are pushing to get Suella Braverman. Out of the cabinet. We don't know how hard Swella Bravman and her allies are pushing to keep her in the cabinet because what we do know is that the Conservative Party, in terms of governmental direction, is about as divided as it has been at any point during the last 12 years. I think the only situations on which they have been more divided have been Brexit and on gay marriage which cost the Conservative Party the largest chunk of their membership that we've ever seen since membership figures of the Conservative Party were recorded so just just something to to put into your minds there but it is certainly a, a very interesting period of, of government for the Conservative Party and for political scholars like myself who get to look at this and say well hang on a minute this is very fun Uh, we get to have a look at this period of what you could describe as managed decline, if you were feeling um, unkind. And we get to say, hang on, this is happening right now. We can use all of these wonderful theories and and theorems that have have been put forward about why governments don't do so well in in times like these. And we will will find out how different things are are going on. A couple of things I've noticed from my Twitter-verse in the last couple of days migration watch who are a, uh, a hardline immigration sort of task force not not quite task force but more I- in the way that it's it's a non-government non-profit organization joining the fight for lower immigration uh, supported by such people like leave.eu Nigel Farage and and the other ones um here we have a couple of quotes that they've promoted in the last couple of days one of them In fact, several of them from Suella Braverman. Uh, One quote here saying they are trying to cancel Suella Braverman, the same people who tried to stop Brexit, the same people who want open borders, but they will never cancel the people that coming from Migration Watch UK. And then they've also used a tweet from Natalie Elphick, the MP for Dover and Deal, who took over from her husband, Charlie Elphick, uh, I believe in 2019. Our border is our front door. No one has the right to walk in uninvited. That is why we have border controls, and that is why strong border security is vital. So that's what Migration Watch have been saying on on one side of things. However, if you look at people such as uh, James O'Brien, for example, who's retweeting uh, things like exclusive. For LBC by Charlotte Lynch, senior home office source tells me Homesec refused to sign off on hotel bookings for migrants at Manston last week because they were in Tory areas. Um, one thing that, that James O'Brien tweeting about there, it won't surprise you to know that James O'Brien is is anti-Suella Braverman. Um, it, it really is quite something to see this this Twitter battle. And it does look like at the moment... Certainly, in in the Twitterverse, James O'Brien is is winning. Um, O'Brien also saying, uh, "Richard Sunek has to appears to have two stock answers for every Starmer question at PMQs, regardless of topic." You back Remain. You served under Corbyn. Um, Oliver Cam, who has a blue tick next to his name and is a, a journalist, author, and language pundit, he retweeted that saying, "Indeed." Doesn't look like a winning strategy or a thoughtful one. Brexit is now an accomplished fact. I think we'll put an asterisk next to that. Where the demonstrated costs greatly outweigh any speculative beliefs. This all coming from Oliver Kamm. And whilst Corbyn was electorally catastrophic, he's not a Labour MP. And no one likens Starmer to him. So there's plenty of, of battling and, and controversy. And one thing that seems set to continue is the battle between the government and the economy. Or at least workers in the economy as the UK government is trending on Twitter it's almost never for a good reason Um, we've seen about immigration we've seen about uh, the Green New Deal that's still being promoted and a wonderful speech in the Lords from uh, Baroness Jenny Jones on the public order bill Um, a very very good Speech you have to say. Uh, I recommend you you have a have a look at it. It's been retweeted a, a number of times from the Lords and got some rousing nods and hear hears from within the Commons, uh, not the Commons, within the Lords because it, of course it was in the Lords. But there's also another group of people, and those are the RMT, the unions, and now students who seem set to go on strike or not necessarily on strike, but come out in solidarity of their UCU member lecturers. We're going to take a a quick break because I said that I would give you a different story at 2.30. I I said that I I would turn our attention to Ittawan and Morbi, and we will. We're going to take a quick song break before we do that. A couple of songs about the situation relating to the UK government. One of them, The first one you're going to hear is Twisted Sister with We're Not Gonna Take It, followed up by another amazing clash song, Um, I Fought the Law. Because uh, Jenny Jones, that baroness who I was talking to you about, well, is labelled by the Met Police as a domestic extremist. So, here we are. It is just coming up to 25 minutes to 3 here on Expression FM on Wednesday, the 2nd of November 2022. Oh, would you look at that? 2 times 11 equals 22. If you write your date in short form, you've got a nice mathematical equation for you to see as well. Take it away, Twisted Sister, and then we'll be talking ISO 1 and Morbi. Okay, so. For the next hour or so of programming, we're going to be doing something slightly different because so often on Politics Unboxed, here on Expression FM, we talk about UK stories, US stories, and later today we'll be talking about Brazilian stories. What we don't often talk about are stories from sort of East Asia or the Asian continent itself. Aside from that, that one time that we touched upon the Chinese Communist Party conference, so let's change that. But unfortunately, we can't change it for the right reasons. We are, of course, going to be talking today about Itawan and Morbi, two horrific incidents that need discussion and questions need to be asked. And where better to do that than on Expression FM, when we're talking about these big political decisions that need to be, uh, need to be questioned, need to have answers given to the people involved and from the people involved. Because, well, I, I'm not even sure how much we know uh, or listeners at home will know about these incidents. Um, because they are... Quite simply, horrendous and astonishing in in all the wrong reasons. Let's start with the one that I think you may know slightly better. Itaewon. And I'm apologising to any listeners uh, from South Korea or who have knowledge of of Korean um, because I'm going to be butchering pronunciations left, right and centre here. But it's important to get a um, a discussion about this story onto the air nonetheless. So in South Korea, we know that there are 150 dead after what can only be described as a horror event over the Halloween period. This is a crush in the narrow streets of the Seoul nightlife district, on the 29th of October this year. The incident happened itself at around 10, 10 pm local time in an alleyway no wider than the room in which I'm sort of speaking to you, which is um, not very wide at all. I'd say you could probably stand, um, what is it? two, three, four, eight people shoulder to shoulder across the width of this room before you started getting into some real jostling and and conditions that are, are not particularly safe. This incident happened at about 10, as I say, but we're now hearing news that emergency response... Or emergency responders were contacted by people in the crowd in the crush with first-hand knowledge of what is happening as early as 6:30 local time. One call, the first emergency call, at 6:34, again hours before the crush. An I1 shopkeeper, Miss Park, um, described the scene as this. No one is controlling it right now. The police has to stand and control this. You should let people out first, then let people come in. People keep pouring in while they can't get out. So this this is the, the alleyway in question. A narrow alley by the Hamilton Hotel and Shopping Mall. Very close to the Ittawan subway station. As people get off the subway, they come up through the alleyway to get into the nightlife district as people want to leave the nightlife district well they go down that same alleyway most of the time as well as that some clubs are actually on that alleyway which means there are people queuing stationary in this, as I say, very narrow alleyway what we have here is a a situation that is not the fault of the people who are involved in the crush, but is, I would argue, the fault of people who inadequately organise the response to emergency calls being made for hours before something happened. What we have are 11 phone calls made to the police in relation to this incident, for which The emergency service only responded with officers being mobilised for four of them. They did not dispatch anyone for any calls made from seven minutes past nine in the evening onwards, and that's the hour leading up to the crash. According to the authorities, they had 137 officers on the ground later on that night. But with thousands of people in the area, that's not enough. There's one viral clip going around social media with a solo police officer in a massive crowd trying to direct people and, and shouting over the the hubbub. But that's not enough. That's, that's just not how um, crowd control works. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that this wasn't crowd control. This was crowd ignorance. This was... I'll put it on the back burner, it'll be fine. South Korea's police chief has said their emergency response to the Itaewon crash was inadequate. That is, um, that is putting it mildly. There are 156 people dead and 152 others injured. On a Saturday night out, as crowds gathered in an alleyway in a popular nightlife district, celebrating their first Halloween without restrictions since covid first imposed those lockdowns. Numerous calls before that accident alerted the police to the severity of this situation and nothing happened. For three and a half hours before this event nothing was done when it could have been. President uh, Yoon Suk-yeol, I apologise for the pronunciation, said on Tuesday, so yesterday, that the incident revealed the importance of crowd management and a lack of research in South Korea on the subject. I'm sorry, what response is that? That's not an answer. That's not, um, that, that's not someone saying we're sorry. That's someone saying that we dropped the ball so hard that it's broken our foot and rebounded and hit us straight in the face. As well as this, Prime Minister Han su has said it is difficult to have safety control in advance for an incident without an organiser. That's fine. That is an agreeable statement. You, you can't plan for an unorganised event. But you can respond to emergency calls. Yu Sang-bom, who is with the ruling People's Power Party on local radio, said it is impossible to ask for legal responsibility as nobody was responsible. And to some extent that's true. We're not looking at a, a David Duckhamfield situation with relation to the Hillsborough disaster, a similar crush with disastrous consequences the the people in this alleyway weren't forced into the alleyway they weren't directed into this alleyway but they weren't stopped attention was not paid to this emerging incident as it was making its way into a reality That is a fundamental failing. Now, this event has been uh, made even more distressing by the fact that the vast majority of these victims are... Well, they're my age. They are between about 18 and 27 from the numbers I've, I've seen. It's... It's people being cut down in the um, in in the the sort of the heyday of their let's go out and have some fun times. This, this is not a time where you should be thinking about oh yes, and that was the last thing they ever did. This is a time when you should be thinking about oh yeah, it's the last thing they did that night before they went out the next night and had some more fun, or before they got onto a grad scheme, or before they were hired by the company of their dreams and they they've had a brilliant career ever since. But 156 of them won't be able to do that. And 152 more may well have severe and long-lasting consequences from this action. Those are the 152 injured. Some accounts are saying there were more than 100,000 people in the Itaewon area of Seoul on Saturday night. Apparently that's not unusual, if it's a particularly popular club, bar and, uh, well, just sort of party destination. For a city the size of Seoul, to have that number of people descend into a sort of nightlife quarter, I don't think would be particularly surprising. But the fact that 156 of them won't be able to come back, or go anywhere ever again, Despite eleven phone calls being made to the police, seven without response. There are there are calls, from about four minutes before the crush begins, which end in tailing off into into screaming. And still, we are led to believe that that is one of the w- one of the calls that went unresponded to. The call was even cut off, abruptly. Now again, in fact, I haven't said this before, but I I want to make this clear that I'm not seeking to place the blame for this horrific incident at the feet of one individual police officer or even several individual police officers. But the structure itself has let this occur. it's it's simply mind boggling if something like that happened in in the United Kingdom you'd imagine there would be sort of the equivalent of lynch mobs outside the police inspector's house there would be a full public inquiry. I don't know whether that's going to happen here in in South Korea as we've heard from key members of the ruling party that they feel that legal responsibility is is murky to put it mildly it's it's not something that I, I wish to dwell on particularly but it is something that is incredibly important to have the attention of of people not involved in this situation drawn to People saying from, from hours beforehand that they were changing their routes to avoid this, this crowded situation and they would go home in a taxi instead. One person saying, on my way home in the taxi, I thought the situation would have been different if I waited there until the police came by forming a human barrier with others and letting young people know that the situation was dangerous. I regret it. The police might have taken stronger control by blocking roads or controlling the subway if they knew that more people would come. But there was no police on the ground who could make such a decision or take action. Something to say there is that this, this, this lady is putting guilt on herself for not taking the initiative and forming a human barrier to stop people going down there. Well, maybe that's one way that the situation could have been ameliorated. It's also another way that more people could have died. That's a civilian saying, I wish I'd done the police's job for them until the police turned up. I wish I'd done the crowd control techniques before the police had got there. No, what I wish is that the police had got there in time. As well as this, When you call 112, which is the emergency police hotline in South Korea, it is customary to receive a a text message back, a confirmation from the police saying what they're going to do in relation to your inquiry. And the South Korean police pride itself on what is is labelled as speedy and attentive follow-ups. Didn't get one. Most of the people that night who rang in, didn't get a follow-up message, which is is not exactly promising. Let's turn our attention to India, because I I feel if I I carry on down this particular South Korean rabbit hole that I will end up um, rather angry, and I think this is the one that we can get even angrier about. So let's have a listen, uh, have a a read of what happened in India because a popular footbridge collapsed on Sunday evening marking one of the worst tragedies in India for years with the deaths of at least 135 people being plunged into a river in the western state of Gujarat the town of Morbi is home to a 137 year old suspension bridge built in colonial times and well called a, a sort of technological marvel it's um well it was a hanging bridge uh, a Jurto pool as it has been labeled on, on on the websites it's a key tourist location in the state built in the late 1880s potentially by the local Maharaja Takore but it also may well have been built sort of in the, in the 1890s by British colonial powers. We don't quite know. Either way, a tourist attraction and a, and a, a destination to go to, just as you might go to sort of Tower Bridge in, in London. Not quite the same. Obviously not quite as sturdy. But it's the same sort of idea. It's a an infrastructural marvel that you can have a look at and, and walk across and be part of the history of it. It collapsed on Sunday evening, plunging what appeared to be hundreds of pedestrians into the river below. I've seen pictures of the the hanging bridge before, and I've seen pictures of where the hanging bridge used to be. After. There is not much left, at all. This was a this was not a panel of a, of a of a wooden bridge coming loose and and making it a little bit unstable. This was a complete structural collapse, much like what was feared was going to happen with sort of the Millennium Bridge when it was wobbling all the way around, uh, as it was first installed in London. Obviously that. Those fears were never realised. These ones have been. The, The real question, though, at least in my mind, is what were the repair workers doing? Because just five days before the event, last Wednesday, so a week ago, to coincide with the Gujarati New Year, this bridge reopened after a lengthy period of restoration, costing around 20 million rupees, or just over 200,000 pounds. According to Jaisuk Baha'i Patel, the owner of Areva Group, who is the, the firm contracted to maintain and operate the bridge, they've been doing that job since 2008 or rather they've been paid to do that job since 2008, is quoted as saying in the Times of India, nothing will happen to the bridge for the next 8 to 10 years, and if it's used responsibly, the bridge will need no repairs for 15 years. He's reported also to have praised the quality of the repair work, the machinery and the contractor that his firm had hired. Those words sound more like faint praise and the the pride that comes before a fall now that we know the bridge collapsed just days after him being quoted as saying that. Following the accident, the police have made nine arrests associated with Oreva. That's the company contracted to maintain and manage the bridge. That includes two managers, two ticket clerks on the payroll, as well as two contractors and three security guards hired by the company. They are all being investigated for culpable homicide. It doesn't amount to murder, but when 137 people fall from a bridge that you have maintained into a river and do not come out alive, charges are evident. At a press conference earlier today in Gujarat, HS Panchal, who is a public prosecutor, has said the two contractors to whom fabrication work had been given by the company were unqualified for the task. But he added, despite this, these contractors were given repair work of the bridge in 2007 and 2022. A forensic report from the investigating officer in court has said the flooring of this bridge was replaced at the time of the renovation, but the cables were not. And the old cables, which have been described as rusted by a police officer giving testimony, the old cables could not take the weight of the newly changed flooring. The BBC and other media sources have contacted Areva to ask for its response to the allegations currently being faced by the company. No statements have yet been made, but in court, a company manager for Areva termed the bridge collapse an act of God. No. An act of God is where a hurricane pops up out of nowhere and destroys a city. An act of God is where a tsunami, a natural tsunami occurs somewhere in the Pacific and and sends thousands of cubic tons of, of water rushing towards civilizations around them. This is an act of man to all available knowledge, at least according to this presenter. The contract for this renovation is valid for 15 years, and it was only signed this March. Wow. Local Municipal Chief Sandipshin Zala has told reporters two days ago that the river had not been given a safety certificate for before it reopened the bridge. And you have to ask yourself, how was it able to reopen the bridge? At this particular time, without a a safety certificate. As well as that, oreva I'll I'll give you a couple of seconds to um to guess what oreva are known for making. Or the oreva group, anyway. Just have a think. I mean, if they if they're contracted to to keep a bridge. In good working order, it must be something structural, right? Maybe they do railways, maybe they do shipping contracts, so they they work with study materials. No, they they make clocks. They make clocks. The Areva Group is a a, a sort of multi-industry... Um, conglomerate sprung from making clocks. It also, for, for the fullness of, of, of how Areva are to be portrayed, they make lighting products, battery-operated bikes, and home appliances. This is like a company that's never operated a ferry service being contracted by the Department for Transport to run a potential No Deal ferry service for uh, for goods and other materials, and that would never happen, would it, Chris Grayling? But this is even worse. There, are, there are tickets as well for this um, for this bridge. It's not as in, in quite the same way as we saw that unticketed and and what people are calling in some quarters, certainly in the police quarters, an unmanageable crush in Itaewon, South Korea. No, this is a a ticketed bridge. According to the, the, the contract to Areva, Areva are allowed to price tickets at 15 rupees for adults and 12 rupees for children. So how... How, with a fully ticketed entry, and I'll remind you, there are only two ways on and off this bridge, and they are the ends of the bridge. How is it that when, when people are saying that there, there should be about 100 to 150 people on the bridge at any one time, how is it that eyewitnesses are estimating there were upwards of 500 people on it? And this gets worse Because despite the fact that this incident is is horrific, without this additional fact, it was at night, in the dark. It was a Sunday, the last day of a week-long Diwali vacation, at the end of two years of COVID-19 restrictions. Again, apparently with no police officers nearby, no divers and no boats. But... Well, when, when a bridge collapses and, and you plunge hundreds of people into the water in the dark, rescue efforts become even less successful. Rescue efforts are ongoing, though, which is to the credit of those working to, to rescue those people still in the water. But now attention is sort of turning to recovery rather than rescue. There are still scores of rescue boats in the water, in the river, around where the bridge collapsed. They're still sometimes fishing out pieces of this bridge. They are still sometimes finding people. But as the days drag on, they are starting in in greater and greater proportions not to find them alive. I fully expect the number of dead from this incident to go up. The the bridge flipped over, and people were thrown, sort of forty-five feet into a river below. Many of them children, many of them elderly. They've now been there since the thirtieth of October. If they haven't been rescued already, shoddy repairs. Shoddy administrative and security work once again has led to deaths. Cut corners almost certainly equal lives cut short. When they don't, people get cocky. People think they can do it again. This is why they cannot be allowed to do it again The Prime Minister of India Narendra Modi on Tuesday called for a detailed and extensive inquiry to identify all aspects relating to Sunday's Morbi bridge collapse The Prime Minister himself visited the site met the injured in a local hospital and chaired a meeting in Morbi to review the situation No doubt a uh, an important action most of it is words. It is a Twitter post or a meeting at a town hall. He was accompanied by the chief minister of Gujarat, Bupendra Patel, and the minister of state for the home or rather interior minister, Harsh Sanghavi. He had a look at the, the places leading up to the suspension bridge through Dabagath, a massive palatial building that marks one end of this bridge. The structure of the Collapse Bridge, I would encourage people to have a look at it before and after. It's shocking to see the differences. We still have search and rescue teams looking and of course I, I hope that they will be successful in finding more survivors in the river below. Or wherever they may be found. But I must admit I am less and less confident they will every day. Now why did I put these two incidents together? This crush in Itoan and this mass collapse in Morbi. Well, neither of them are getting quite the level of attention in in the sort of mainstream media that I believe they deserve. And yes, they're not happening in England or France or Germany or America or somewhere nice and close that reminds British listeners and viewers of home and allows them to involve themselves in a story and encourages them to think oh yes, no, I'll, I'll I'll watch that because it's similar to how I imagine this situation or what I remember from a different situation these are personal tragedies but on a massive scale and to gloss over or forget to report on these would be, well, fundamentally wrong. I don't think anybody could really argue with that. So that's why I've been talking about this crush in Itawan and this bridge collapse in Morbi. And I understand that it's it's not something everybody wants to listen to, which is why I haven't dedicated the entire show to it. But it is important to remember and to, to look on to these events, to find, if nothing else, where we can learn and move forward so that we never have to see a repeat of these incidents, either in the locations they are currently based, or in in the United Kingdom and other countries around the world. Whether or not we will see uh, police and law enforcement being charged in ito one, I I would imagine that without extreme public pressure, it will not happen. And I I don't see that level of public pressure through sort of scouring social media, and and having a look at various reports from South Korea. I don't I just don't see that pressure coming as of yet. In India, though, where this pressure has the support of Narendra Modi, the prime minister, where it is quite clear that something has gone horrendously wrong in relation to this bridge collapse, having just been renovated days before. I feel we we will see some people being brought to justice. Whether they're the right people, I don't know. But they will be there facing charges at some point. At least I hope. Thank you for listening through to this a uh, bit of a ramble. We are gonna go to a song break now. And I'm I made mention of this particular incident slightly earlier in um in this this brief piece around Ito and Morbi. But um in in relation to Crushes and, and public scale disasters, I think there is only really one uh one song that comes to mind. And it is an anthem associated with Liverpool Football Club that is sung every year as as people continue to search for justice for the 97 people who died as a result of the horrendous crush at Hillsborough Stadium all those years ago. So this is You'll Never Walk Alone. We'll see you with some I was going to say slightly happier stories but um, slightly less morbidly depressing stories after this song break than a feeling there by Boston as it fades gently into the background Um, thank you for for listening so far Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the show as we've been making it so far Uh, I've realised that now I've got about 40 minutes in order to make um, a lot of points. So uh, I'm going to be cutting down a bit on the running order. But one thing I am going to start with for this next, well, section, segment, however we want to call it on Politics Unboxed, is going to be about um, Brazil's presidential election because it is very important in the region. And I don't know if you've had a chance to have a read of the article. It's www.politicsunboxpodcast.wordpress.com where you can see an article written by yours truly around the, the whole messy story, warts and all, of Lula's return and Bolsonaro's response and why it's all so important. That one released on Halloween at 3 p.m., um, Luiz Inácio da Silva, or Lula for short, has won the 2022 Brazilian presidential election with 50.9% of the vote compared to his competitor, incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro, who won 49.1%. It's a clear victory for the Workers' Party leader in what has been a staggering return to the top job in Brazilian politics. Previously, a... um, a president of Brazil from 2003 to 2010 his chances of ever returning to the levels of popularity of extreme popularity that Lula held uh, during his presidential term were thought to be sort of non-existent just four years ago when He was imprisoned on a corruption charge for 580 days, accused of taking money from a construction company in return for contracts with Brazilian company, Petrobras. Lula is a former metal worker, union organiser, left-wing firebrand, very popular president during his time, but his legacy was tainted by Dilma Rousseff, his hand-picked successor, who brought the presidency into disrepute. He was, um, or rather she, sorry, handpicked by Lula in order to follow in his footsteps as head of the Workers' Party and head of Brazil, caught in the middle of a mass corruption investigation. Operation Clean Slate and Operation Car Wash, both of which were put forward to make sure that Brazil wouldn't fall into the depths of, well, the, these mass corruption scandals. Um, it, it would appear, though, that Lula's imprisonment was erroneous. He was then released by uh, the Brazilian Supreme Court, his conviction annulled, allowing him to run in this election. Was he guilty of a, guilty by association with uh, relations to his his successor Dilma Rousseff? Well, guilty by association isn't actually a legal accusation you can particularly make if you want it to stand up in a court of law. But it did make Lula a target for those who disagreed with his successor and who wanted a breakaway from the corruption of the past in Brazil. And that's really why Jair Bolsonaro was able to get through quite so convincingly back in 2018. He swept to victory. Let's have a look at Jair Bolsonaro, though. The um, former army captain and a bit of a, a Trumpian, not quite exhibitionist, because that has all sorts of connotations, but certainly a populist. Uh, He knows exactly how to get a crowd singing along to his tune. And he's quite popular with his own uh, set of the Brazilian people, much as Lula is with his crowd of followers. Bolsonaro, a key international ally of the Trump administration and... um, Not a massive fan of Leonardo DiCaprio, it would appear, as he he called him out specifically for funding fires in the Amazon in order to further his environmentalist message. Yeah, Uh, criticisms of Bolsonaro from DiCaprio and others. Uh, I know John Oliver's done a a brilliant piece on him in his show last week tonight. Sort of, uh, it's not quite journalism, but it's also not quite satire. It sort of toes the line between what is and isn't outright humour. But uh, he did an amazing piece on him. But those criticisms roll like water off the back of a particularly hydrophobic duck. And they embolden the actions and the base, much as when people considered to be part of the establishment would criticise Donald Trump, well, his base and his actions would just seem to be emboldened. Jair Bolsonaro was elected, on a Social Liberal Party ticket. He really, though, is much more of a social Christian, um, and that's why he's left the Social Liberal Party, moved on to the Liberal Party, which is now his base, very much in a classical liberal style. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro elected on a very interesting ticket, but to his credit as a politician, but not necessarily to the, um, well pleasure of the international community, he has cracked down on a number of things that he he said he would. Um, Certain what we would call socially liberal rights have have been under attack from Bolsonaro in the recent times. Um, He also has what can be considered a ridiculous response to coronavirus, but one that he still defends, despite Brazil having the second highest death toll in the world, just behind the United States, and it, it did leave many, even in his sort of base, the the, the richer suburbs of Sao Paulo, uh, it left people protesting outwardly, saying that this is not why we um, we voted for Jair Bolsonaro. This this is something very, very different. And Bolsonaro w- looked like he was in danger from that moment on of losing his large majority. Bolsonaro, though, hasn't actually conceded yet. Um, he, he has announced that the, the election has finished, but he has not said that Lula has won. Very Trumpian. They've both refused to concede their elections, and in the run-up to the election, certainly they both cast doubt onto the legitimacy of the voting machines on which the election was going to be um, conducted. So that's somewhat sad, um, and and very disturbing and distressing from a a security and Legitimacy point of view, because as we all know, if if key figures continue to suggest that elections are stolen, then it it becomes it becomes very difficult for for those people to or those people who have actually won a free, fair, and, and untainted election, as Joe Biden, I believe, called this Brazilian uh, election. Uh, to exert the the levels of of not necessarily control but of of just simply being able to to do the job that they were elected to do because public um policy is is very much dependent on well how the public react to it it very much is, is is dangerous to start setting into, well, start setting into doubt how different people will be able to act and push forward policies that people were voted in on the back of. Some, aww, oh, some very sad breaking news that that I have just seen. Um, Ronnie Radford, scorer of one of the most iconic goals in FA Cup history, has died at the age of 79. Um, that goal, a 30-yard first-time Thunderbolt on a muddy pitch as Hereford United beat Newcastle United in, in the third round back in 1972. Um, and Ronnie Radford, scorer of that goal, has unfortunately passed away. Um, it's not known yet any, any cause of death. A statement from Hereford United reads, We're devastated to hear of Ronnie's passing and wish to extend our deepest condolences to his family and friends at this very sad time. Ronnie is not just a part of Hereford folklore. he's a part of football history and has kept Hereford on the football map since 1972. His mild manner and friendly and modest approach to life epitomised the man he was, and he was always delighted to visit Edgar Street to meet up with past teammates and watch the present-day team in action. We will always keep Ronnie close to our hearts here at Edgar Street, not just at FA Cup moments, but forever, and celebrate him and his huge role in propelling Hereford United to the forefront of the nation's attention with that goal and being part of that team. We will carry your spirit onwards. Rest in peace. Ronnie. Well, the very sad news there that Ronnie Radford has died at the age of 79. We're going to move away from the Brazilian election because, well, for one, the the particular legislative play out of how this is going to go is not yet over and I want to bring you a fuller story once we know the, the overall picture. We know that Bolsonaro's party have kept some of their level of majority and control over the the legislative buildings uh, not buildings rather but the legislative house in brazil um we we don't yet know how well they will be able to cooperate with lula in the presidential palace but of course we won't have to worry about that yet or at least until 2023 because there is quite a long time between election and um and coronation in, in the Brazilian presidential system, or rather, I should probably have said inauguration. Uh, there is another leader making a a, uh, a a return. Lula, of course, being one in Brazil. Let's talk Benjamin Netanyahu, former Israeli prime minister, is on the brink of a dramatic comeback as partial results about eighty six percent of the votes from the general election having been counted. Benjamin Netanyahu's bloc set to win sixty five. Out of a hundred and twenty seats, um, his party, the the Likud party, will however be dependent on the support of the ultra-nationalist religious Zionism party. Its leaders Itamar Ben Gvir and Ben Zeev Smotrich have de- have gained their notoriety for using anti-Arab rhetoric and advertising uh, sorry not advertising advocating the deportation of disloyal politicians or civilians, especially Mr. Ben-Gver, who was a follower of the late ultra-nationalist Meir Kahane, whose organisation was banned in Israel and designated as a terrorist group by the United States, with Mr. Ben-Gver himself having been convicted of incitement to racism and supporting a terrorist organisation. He was also filmed last month pulling out a gun after being targeted with a stone thrown by Palestinians whilst visiting the flashpoint, uh, predominantly the Arab Sheikh Jahara district of occupied eastern Jerusalem and calling for police to shoot the culprits. Speaking to reporters earlier today, Mr. Ben-Gavir has promised to work for all of Israel, even those who hate me, seemingly suggesting that he will be keen to enter this coalition with uh, Likud and Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, I, I say that these are only partial results. Uh, We don't yet know the full results. 86% of votes counted, as I say. But Likud and the bloc around them and Benjamin Netanyahu set to win 65 out of 120 seats, which is a huge victory. This election had been seen as a vote of confidence or lack thereof in Mr Netanyahu. As one of Israel's most controversial political figures, a prime minister for, I believe, about 12 years. Um, It was... Just over uh, a year ago, back in June 2021, that Yair Lapid put together a a party and a party bloc specifically to make it impossible for Benjamin Netanyahu to form a government. And now, it looks like Netanyahu has um, well has has broken that coalition's back. Yesh Atid, who led the coalition, sorry, the party which led the coalition, which brought down Netanyahu last year, is projected to just win 24 seats. Now, this is going to roll on and on. Earlier, exit polls predicted that Benjamin Netanyahu's block would win 61 or 62 seats. It does look, however, that Yair Lapid uh, has been telling his supporters and his centre-left Yeshatid party that nothing is yet decided, as you would expect when the votes have not been fully counted and and verified. But it does look like Benjamin Netanyahu is on his way back to the uh, the prime ministerial office of Israel, which is is going to be big. Um, I'm not quite sure how big we don't know it will certainly be an interesting time for the middle east as we've seen flashpoints in fact interesting is is a, probably the the wrong word to use there but um it's really this this time is certainly not going to be uncontroversial we've already seen flashpoints between israeli and palestinian forces Uh, and not even necessarily forces, just sometimes groups of people. So I'm not quite sure how this is going to work out. If it will work out for the best, I'm not certain. Um, We're going to go to a quick song break as I get ready for my next story, which is going to be about Rishi Sunak. I know, we've spent so long not talking about him this time, but I've rather broken that particular uh, trend. Uh, This is a little bit of ABBA, And it is money, money, money. We'll be back after this. It is most certainly a rich man's world. Uh, That was Abba with money, money, money. And we're going to be talking about some treasury tax rises because it looks like they're on the way. Yay. Don't we all just love tax rises? Oh, I know. Can you tell that the sarcasm is is sort of evident in my voice because everybody loves tax rises, right? And um, just about, what is it, a month less than that even after we were being promised that we would be cutting taxes for generations to come, creating a low-tax, high-growth economy, that was, of course, quite and Liz Truss, um, it has ended up that we are possibly, possibly, anyway, going to be seeing some tax rises because... Jeremy Hunt and the Treasury have been sort of briefing and saying that, look, we should be we should be prepared for some tax rises. Now, that's not the best news for people already in a cost of living crisis. It's not the best news for people who are waiting to see whether or not the support that they will be hoping is still on the way after being promised by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng over energy bills, whether or not they will still be seeing that level of support and whether or not they will just be sort of having to pay for it themselves through tax rises. Um, It is uh, mixed Messaging, which is really not what we need to see uh, i I really don't know how the the Chancellor expects to be able to calm the markets if he can't tell us what he's going to do to calm the markets. Of course, this comes as the budget was a budgetary statement rather was delayed from october thirty first to November seventeenth so get your diaries out that is in one two three, four. Oh yes, it's in 15 days. It's uh, two weeks on Thursday. Uh, Jeremy Hunt has held talks with the Prime Minister. That was on Monday, ahead of his budget on the 17th of November. The Treasury source saying that across-the-board across tax hikes were inevitable, adding, it's going to be rough. The Treasury has also labelled that there is a fiscal black hole facing the United Kingdom, which the BBC has previously been told may be at least $50 billion hounds i mean wow we we could be looking at something the daily telegraph are predicting that D- jeremy hunt is planning to fill the budgetary shortfall through a combination of 50% tax rises and 50% cuts to public spending and his predecessor or actually his his colleague at the time but in terms of at the treasury his Predecessor George Osborne also oversaw a period of austerity after 2010. He worked to a broad formula of 80% cuts and 20% tax rises. That was austerity 1.0. Some would say we've lived through austerity 2.0 uh, during sort of Brexit times. Uh, that's, it, is a, it is a contested argument, but the, the argument has been made certainly. And now are we looking at either austerity 2.5 or 3.0? It looks that Jeremy Hunt, after saying last month, he was facing decisions of eye-watering difficulty on the public finances. The Treasury have said now that Jeremy Hunt and Rishisunak agreed on the principle that those with the broadest shoulders should be asked to bear the greatest burden, but it has warned, given the enormity of the challenge, it's inevitable that everybody would need to contribute more tax in the years ahead. Um, This is quite simply... Astounding. Uh, Ministers have not ruled out a real terms cut to pensions, a real terms cut to benefits. So that's just when you're raising those things by less than the level of inflation, which means that people have less money in their pockets to spend because the price of everything is going up. Um, Liz Truss previously also ruling out windfall taxes, saying they send the wrong message to international investors. The Times now reporting Jeremy Hunt is considering increasing the current windfall tax, extending an end date of 2025 by three years. With the Times also saying officials have been working on uh, plans for a windfall tax on electricity generating companies. What do you know? It's Labour Party policy. Um, We're seeing a curious mix of backtracking and finding out what's popular in the Labour manifesto and then doing that instead. We're also seeing things, reports coming out of uh, Downing Street, both numbers 10 and 11, that Rishi Sunak is considering freezing international aid for two years and cutting international investment spending. Um, With the Resolution Foundation think tank predicting many of the options facing the government are unpalatable, as people could be pushed into the higher 40% rate of tax in a bid to make up a public shortfall. Now, we know the economic situation has changed quite drastically since Rishi Sunak was making most of his promises in in the conservative leadership campaign. But have they changed that much that we've now gone from um, a little bit of belt tightening to go on, get your whalebone corset out. It's time to see how much air we can squeeze out of those lungs until people pass out. I really hope not, because that's not a particularly palatable system of how to run a country. The Conservatives, I would imagine, um, are, are looking quite nervously at what Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are pushing for on, on the government side of things. Another man who I'm sure is looking nervously ahead at things to come is Matt Hancock, who has joined the cast of um, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here the West Suffolk Conservative Member of Parliament has been called an absolute prat by his Conservative colleague Tim Lawton, MP. His Conservative Association have said they are disappointed, accusing the MP of a serious error of judgment. Um, Rishi Sunak and the Conservative leadership seem to have taken a very dim view of how... This uh, has been portrayed as the whip has been suspended. The Conservative whip has been suspended from Matt Hancock in response to his uh, doing this. But the West Suffolk MP is not resigning from the Commons. He's still going to be paid and take his £84,000 a year plus expenses salary. um, And... He's going to be taking a fee for the programme. Now, Matt Hancock has said he will donate some of his fee, uh, which he's going to have to declare exactly how much he got paid in the Register of Members' Interests. He's going to uh, donate some of that fee to charity. Hasn't said all of it. And fair enough, I wouldn't want to eat kangaroo testicles for nothing either, but I wouldn't do it as a sitting Member of Parliament. Now, this, this is the second Conservative Member of Parliament in the last decade to have done this, to fly off... To Australia, um, as a Member of Parliament. The other one being Nadine Doris, who was suspended from the Conservative Parliamentary Party for six months after her appearance on I'm a Celeb in 2012. And, um, well, there is also a-, a Labour figure, former Scottish Labour leader Kezia Dugdale, who went, I believe, in about 2016. I don't know. Uh, but what you, what you really have to look at is, is this the right time to do it? I would argue completely not. Energy costs are spiralling. The government is facing this budgetary black hole. There is still a war in Ukraine. Um, his constituents are clearly not happy with him. And you are a sitting member of parliament, man. You can't be swanning off to Brisbane to go do some television show. I mean, by all means, make a documentary on how the, the government's policies are, are are affecting the people. Go on. The the news programs that pay you for your appearances go on all sorts of different programs that that can pay you for your appearances. But I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. At a time of alleged national crises and when the the economy is in a state, it's... Well, I mean, I I doubt it'll be the most damaging. Uh, Even if he does have to eat kangaroo testicles, it won't be the most damaging thing he was caught kissing after his um, affair with a married colleague in his office forced him to quit the role of health secretary over coronavirus don't think we've forgotten about that Matt Hancock Um, the former cabinet minister says he doesn't expect to serve in government again but hopes to use his time in the jungle to raise awareness about dyslexia which he has himself Um, also he says Upon facing criticism for this, that politicians should go where the people are. My question is: How many of his constituents are down there in the Australian outback? How many of them? I can tell you, two, because of the um, the the I'm a celebrity, not cast list, but the the crew. If it, if they've retained some of the same crew, I think we can assume that two of his constituents are actually down there, down and out in uh, in Australia. And whilst people may be watching him, they'll be watching him laughing and probably giving him his best voter turnout he will ever get again. As Hancock's constituents say, we will be voting for him to eat kangaroo testicles. As one of them says, Richard Pateley from Red Lodge in Suffolk speaking to the BBC saying, I'm absolutely outraged. Given the complete mess he and his party have got this country in, he should be in Westminster and his constituency to fix all the problems we are now facing and not attention-seeking on national TV. Uh, Richard Patey saying he doesn't normally watch I Must Lair but urges all of his fellow West Suffolk constituents to vote for Matt in every challenge. A quote saying, um, People of West Suffolk, show your displeasure. I'm going to make it my business to see that he eats kangaroo genitalia every day he's in the jungle. Other constituents calling it deeply disrespectful. But um, Claire Reeve of Haverhill in West Suffolk saying people wouldn't even notice the difference with him gone. He does nothing for us anyway. Still calling it deeply disrespectful. Um, He's got a majority of 23,194 he he seems pretty safe if he can get the conservative whip back. But I feel, and putting out my opinion on this one, he should really be um, probably punished for this quite more severely. I have no problem with him trying to raise um, the awareness of disability and dyslexia issues. But going on I'm a Celeb and going in the jungle is not the way to do that. I mean... For goodness sake, start a podcast. That's what most people going through a sort of midlife crisis around his age will do. He's already been on a couple of them. It can't be that hard. It'd be easier than going to do Bush Tucker trials every day for three weeks before he gets voted off inevitably, um, losing his first election of the year. Um, note how I say first election of the year there. I'm not exactly expecting a, a general election in, in 2022 anyway. But Matt Hancock going off to Australia to just swan it up with Anton Deck whilst his constituents are really feeling the pinch of how the cost of living crisis will be affecting people and just just how entitled does he think he is with that act how absolutely entitled does he think he is to go and and swan off to go and do some ITV reality show rather than the work he was elected and will continue to be paid to do. Now, I've got quite angry about that. I can't imagine how some more of his constituents feel. Um, if you've got an opinion on it, please let me know. Go to at politics.unboxed on Instagram, at politics you on Twitter. Go to, uh, let me think, where else have we got it? Um... We're on Facebook, Politics Unboxed. Go to www.politicsunboxedpodcast.wordpress.com or go to Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. Go and find wherever you get your podcast and search for Politics Unboxed. Because I mentioned he start a podcast, he's always more than welcome on mine, where there'll be a couple more episodes being released in the next couple of days. Maybe it'll just be me doing some explainers. Maybe there'll be some special guests. Maybe we'll even have somebody running for a congressional seat in the United States appearing on the podcast over the course of the next week as we, of course, get ready for that US elections midterm show which you can hear on Expression FM uh, and you'll be able to hear it on the 8th of November. It's just around the corner, really tell you something else that's just around the corner. The end of the show. Um, We've got not very long left in terms of minutes before it hits four o'clock. So I want to thank you all very much for listening. Uh, Thank you for listening to the slightly uh, unusual show that we have had this time around. I know there's some topics that I trailed at the start of the show I wasn't able to get through. So please do find our podcast on Politics Unboxed. Uh, On our website or on our podcast providing platforms where you'll be able to hear some stories in the not too distant future about a compassionate society, uh, whether or not Swella Bravman is in the right, whether or not uh, there are some genuine points of concern around the immigration debate. I'll give you a clue. The answer to some of those questions is yes and some of those questions is no. We'll be talking about the US midterm elections. There will be a teaser trailer. There are lots of talking points. There are lots of things that we can look both at the 2022 election and at the 2024 election. Who's already campaigning for 24 through the 22 run? Plenty of people, it would seem. And we'll also be having a, a special podcast all about Northern Ireland. Chris Heaton-Harris, the Northern Ireland secretary, says there will be an election. for Stormont won't say when. Also, after... What is it? I think it's close to a year of doing no work for full pay. There go the Stormont ministerial team. I wonder how they will be constituted when they come back to it. But that is all for today on Expression FM from Politics Unboxed. This has been the 1400 show. Thank you very much for listening. I will be back on your airwaves at 9pm on Sunday with the Sunday Digest. But Politics Unboxed, as always, is back on your radios uh, at 2 p.m. next Wednesday, Wednesday the 9th, where a very tired me, after having gone all through the night on November the 8th to bring you some um, political coverage of the U.S. midterm elections, will unpack the major stories. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. And, um, well, I think something that Matt Hancock will be feeling when he's on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here is like he's winning every single vote. And that's because they'll be voting for him to do all the trials. So in honour of that, here to play us out, it's the Bee Gees with you win again. I will see you all very soon. What a what a loud intro that was. Apologies, ladies and gentlemen. But here are the Bee Gees with you win again.